Hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel, your host here on Stand to Reason, and uh, just come off that wonderful interview with Sean McDowell, which I hope you really enjoyed. And there's so many great things that we talked about there. Um, Rebels Manifesto, his book again. So I highly recommend it, particularly for young people and for parents getting um, getting a, a a broad view of a large number of issues that they're going to be facing. Um, Quick uh, kind of announcement of sorts. Um, if you want to know where STR speakers are speaking at, the best place to go is to str.org forward slash events. str.org slash events. Okay. I actually have a hard time remembering that. I said go to our website and check it out, but that's where it's at. And I'll be doing some things in the next few weeks, one in Owasso, Michigan, a uh, weekend after this one coming up. This one coming up is of course our reality in seattle and uh and then i'll be in michigan and then i'm going to be in uh, north carolina the following weekend uh, towards the end of the month um so uh, all of this stuff is 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 uh there robbie lashua is doing some things in phoenix area uh alan schleeman's all over the country in the world and tim and john and we're all doing stuff so if you want to find out whether we're in your neck of the woods then uh, check out str.org slash events, and you'll get the skinny there. Um, I had mentioned during my time with Sean that I was uh, at Burke Community Church in uh, in the D.C. area this last weekend. I flew in Thursday night and uh, taught Friday afternoon and evening and uh, during the day on Saturday. By the way, Hugh Ross was on board with me, and th- that guy's magnificent. I just had a great time listening to his sessions and uh, hanging out with him a little bit. I don't get to see you very often, but I have so much respect for him and the the information that he offers. He's pilloried by many Christians, unfortunately, because he's an old earth creationist. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, he's really doing a lot for our side. And, uh, of course, I don't hold that against him. But even those that differ with him, I just wish they wouldn't beat up so brutally on a good brother who's doing magnificent work, even if they disagree on this particular view. Um, in any event, uh, he, since he is a concordist, by the way, in the way he understands the Genesis material, and a concordist is somebody who thinks that the Genesis material tells us what happened in the order that it happened. He's making, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's making the, or he's understanding the text to be in concord with um, the, the, a, a, a kind of scientific assessment of the world, okay, and so he's giving that 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 assessment, and it's a chronologue that's going on there. Now that's that's similar to young earthers because they are concordists as well. They just think it happened in a shorter period of time. And um, and the Earth is and the universe is as much younger, so that's the point of difference. But uh, in any event, um, uh, Reasons to Believe has been a fabulous organization for many many years. I think they've been on board almost as long as we have, twenty nine years for us. And I we highly recommend them. Okay, I'm just saying. And I don't agree with everything they all teach, but they are certainly people to take seriously. And they love the Lord, and they're doing magnificent work for the kingdom. Uh, also, when I was gone, though, uh, while I was there, I, during my own Q&A, issues of gender came up in dealing with gender. And I chatted with Sean quite a bit about that this last hour. But I, I wanted to say one more thing. 
because I I have finished my chapter and sent it into Zondervan where I deal with this issue. And one of the things I say in the chapter, I think I said this last week, I was talking about this because I was using my own writing as a as a you know crib sheet, so to speak, for my comments last week about this being the ground zero of a much bigger issue that has spiritual ramifications. And when I say spiritual, I mean in terms of of under I mean legitimate spiritual warfare. Okay, and I see spiritual warfare principally as truth encounters, not power encounters. And I say this because of what I see in the Scripture that describes the devil and the way he he um, advances his program in the world, and he advances his program chiefly by deception, not by a, a kind of demonic control of certain things, but rather by deception. And this is obvious in a number of verses. I won't go over them. I've done that before. And I've written about that before. In fact, I think when I talked about, um, I'm just trying to think, maybe it was three years ago when I talked about seeing the unseen. That's a uh, solid ground that uh, we published, and I've included that material in the new book. But this is a spiritual battle, Ephesians 6 stuff, okay? And the battle is launched uh, by the enemy through a largely deceived world who don't see what's going on, who are fighting for their own convictions, their own understanding of what human flourishing looks like, and Sean mentioned that, but nevertheless are being taken advantage of by spiritual forces in heavenly places. Uh, Forces of wickedness that uh, advance their project through schemes, that is, through machinations. There's a program that they're pursuing, and and my conviction is that this all of this stuff about gender and sexuality and marriage is all part of that program because these are all issues that go back to the creation order, the order that God made for the purpose of human flourishing of image bearers. And the devil can't get at God, so he's getting at his people, broadly the church, but even more broadly those who bear his image human populations. And if they can destroy image bearers, uh, that's the next best thing to destroy. And the church, of course, this is the best they can do to undermine God's purposes, these spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. But uh, a thing that came up in our discussion last hour, and uh, also in my uh, Q&A session with the audience there at Burke, uh, was... when, when do we draw the line? First, how do we respond? And then, by application, from my perspective, where do we draw the line? We have to find a way to respond, and I recommend a grace and truth approach, okay? Graciously stand for the truth. And Sean gave a great characterization of what that might look like. At the same time, though, there is a point in which we, when we stand for the truth, that means we just say no. We have to say no to the culture. Here I stand, I can do no other. That's Martin Luther, the Reformation, the launch of the Reformation, but this is, that was out of faithfulness. He wasn't launching a Reformation. He didn't know that. He was obeying God. He was being faithful to his own audience of one the same audience that is the most important audience for us. Not our friends, not our family, not our employer, but God. 
And if we are if we are going to make a difference for truth, first we stand tall ourselves. But we can be more effective if we if we have numbers in the church or even kindred spirits in our own business, where we're getting bullied, which is the appropriate word, in our own business, and in in other words, as an employee of an employer who is using his power or her power over his or her employees uh, to advance their own political views, to to um, to uh, uh, teach and and promote and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not inoculate, but uh, that other word that means you're teaching and promoting your own political view. I'll think of it in a few minutes. But why, why, why indoctrinate? There it is, indoctrinate. Why does the employer think it's appropriate for him to use, for that person to use their power to indoctrinate that person's staff, trying to be gender neutral here, for their own political purposes? If you don't agree with my politics, you can't work here anymore? But that's effectively what's happening. And and there's only one way to stop that, not only from happening, but from getting a lot worse. And that's just by saying no, by refusing. And if you have, if you can find 10, 15, 20 others, and by the way, they don't have to be Christians because a lot of people are troubled by this, who don't agree with all this, all of this politics and don't like being indoctrinated, but they're just too scared to say anything. Make common cause with them. And then, as a group, you go graciously with your hand, hat in your hand, respectfully to the employer and say, we think this is inappropriate. It causes us to violate our own consciences. It is inconsistent with our own convictions. We are not allowed to be authentic, but we are asked or being demanded to be hypocrites in our behaviors here at work. We are committed, particularly as Christians, to being hard workers, to being gracious and kind and loving to others, but at the same time, uh, we have our own convictions. And we're not going to cause trouble. We're not even going to try to change other people's minds. But we are, we, we are, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. Essentially, you're demanding, though you don't need to use that word. We're demanding that we be allowed to have our own point of view. And that our livelihood does not hinge on us um, acting ourselves according to our own conscience. Now, push comes to shove. I think this is where it's time to say there's going to be a, there's going to be legal action against this company, um, and f- on behalf of this entire group. If this is what how you continue now. I, I'm not in that circumstance. It's easy for me to give advice, and so everybody's got to decide what they're going to do for themselves. But if you don't, if you don't draw the line somewhere, then no line ever gets drawn. And sometimes you think, "Well, it can't get worse than this." That's what they said at Christel Nacht, the the night of breaking glass, and the 
persecution of, of Jews in the late 30s in Germany. It can't get any worse than this. Well, it got a whole lot worse. Now, I'm not drawing a direct parallel there because I don't imagine things are going to get as bad as that, but there's a lot of the excesses of that totalitarian regime are already in place here, and we still have the ability to say no. And that's what we ought to do. And it's more powerful when we say no as a group than when we say no as individuals. But if all we're done is left by ourselves, we can still choose before God not to live by lies. All right? Okay, so those are my comments to start out. Now, what we're going to do here is open mic calls today, because I'm actually broadcasting on an off day here, <clears throat> not taking calls, because you guys don't know I'm on. But uh, let's, that's the value of having open mic calls. And by the way, if you have a question that you haven't been able to get to me with, and you would like to do that in a live kind of way, that is, instead of sending in a question to hashtag STRask, as many of you do, but you're actually sending a, you're voicing your question to me, you can do that by going str.org and uh, broadcast, is that it? The broadcast, yeah, I think it's podcasts, the homepage, podcasts, and then live broadcasts. Okay, I got it written down here. I just wasn't looking at it. <clears throat> and then you follow the prompts, press the button, then go ahead and give us your question and try to keep it brief and to the point. And uh, it, it's helpful, by the way, if you have a question, if you just have an opinion and that's what you're voicing, it's not likely it's going to make it on the show because that's not what we're looking for, okay? Uh, thank you for the opinion. <laughs> Amy's going to hear it, but uh, it probably will not make it onto the show. Um, or you can just dial direct at 857-DIAL-STR, 857-342-5787, and then just uh, follow the directions there, speak into the phone, and uh, and then I'll get that too. And then um, we'll... In times like this, uh, we'll be able to fall back on your calls. So let's go to Justin Begley. Justin uh, wants to talk about apostasy in the church and uh, perseverance of the states, the saints rather. So, Justin, what's on your mind? Hi, Greg. Thank you for your ministry and your work in apologetics. I learned a lot over uh, the past couple of years listening to you and reading some of your work. Um, so I've been really appreciative of all the wisdom and all the teachings that uh, you've you've given to me uh, mm. through your ministry. Mm. I'm currently a seminary student studying for an MDiv in apologetics and Christian philosophy at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and generally would consider myself reformed in my faith. Mm -hmm. Given that, I have a question regarding how we can reconcile biblical texts that discuss oncoming apostasy in the church with texts that support the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Mm -hmm. Specifically, uh, looking at Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8, and 2 Peter 2, verses 17 to 22, indicate that the ones who depart from the faith, and thus are considered to be apostates, will be those who have shared in the witness of the Holy Spirit, knew the Lord Jesus, knew the way of righteousness, mm -hmm. and tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and yet still, despite all of that, fell away. Mm -hmm. And Hebrews 6 even kind of further states that it's impossible for these people to be brought back into repentance. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, it seems that uh, the type of people that, that at least the author of Hebrews and Peter are talking about are Christians, namely those who have received the witness of the Holy Spirit, knew Christ, were repentant believers, mm -hmm. uh, but despite these things still fell away from the faith. Um, hence, it kind of seems to me that these texts don't allow for the implication that uh, these 
folks specifically were simply never saved or never truly regenerate as a typical reformed response might indicate. But admittedly, I could be wrong on my interpretation. If I'm not mistaken, uh, William Lane Craig, in believing that people are endowed with libertarian free will and thus can choose to enter a relationship with God on their own volition, uh, believes that people can, in the same way, freely choose to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit after, have, after having um, received it mm-hmm. and then depart from the faith or become an apostate. I don't believe in libertarian free will, um, so I, I don't accept the answer that Craig proposes, but it does seem at least to fit, in some part, the passages uh, that I referenced in Hebrews 6 and mm-hmm. 2 Peter 2. Mm-hmm. So my question then, kind of to sum all this up, is how should reformers, or rather the reformed believers, uh, think about apostasy and the per- perseverance of the saints? Should we think that apostates are those with you know, to reference the parable of the sower that Jesus tells, um, should we think of apostates as those who are, the uh, who kind of have hearts of rocky soil or thorns, or sh- is there something more to it than that? Namely, like, is it really that apostates are just those who were never saved, or do, do Hebrews 6, 2 Peter 2, and other texts in the Bible suggest that there's, that the apostates are more than just those mm-hmm. who were never actually saved. Mm-hmm. Thank you again for uh, taking the time to consider my question and uh, may God bless you, your family and your ministry. Well, that's sweet, Justin. Thank you for the, <clears throat> for the blessings. <laughs> I need it. We need it. Uh, we all need that, of course. And it, this is a very, very good question. It's involved. Um, it's not quite what I thought, I was going to confront when I had the summary here from Amy, uh, reconciling apostasy in the church, which I took as like a second Thessalonians apostasy writ large, like the church going south, and what about perseverance of the saints? But this is actually a different kind of question. This is more about um, texts that seem to indicate that one can lose their salvation, and then texts that seem to indicate that one can't, or at least the comparison was made here to a a doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And then uh, William Lane Craig was brought in, discussion about libertarian freedom, etc. Now, uh, so let me, let me, Hmm. Let me. I have a lot to say about this, uh, so let me take it one by one. Um, I actually do believe in libertarian freedom, okay? And I take libertarian freedom that that is the ability to do the the other, uh, otherwise, you know, of of one's own accord, as it were. So I could do A or I could do B. All right, that's libertarian freedom. Now I think that there are lots of occasions where we exercise libertarian freedom, but I don't think that libertarian freedom is true about everything. My theology, my understanding of the scriptural teaching of the nature of the fall, is that we have lost our capability um, on our own, as it were, uh, in a libertarian kind of way to turn from our sin and respond to God's offer of forgiveness. Now, William Lane Craig disagrees with this, okay? Um, So, yeah, he's Arminian, and that's not any surprise for those who know Bill and his teaching and all, etc., okay? Um, But um, my point here is just to say you can be a libertarian, believe in libertarian freedom as it touches a host of decisions, but still believe in sovereign grace as it touches the question of salvation 
and election. Now, so that would be me, okay? And I and I believe that I hold my view about election for particular biblical reasons. I won't get into all of those things at this moment, but I'm just kind of clearing the categories a little bit, okay? A lot of Reformed people don't believe in libertarian freedom. They believe in uh, self-determinism or what's called compatibilism. I'm not even convinced those two categories are, are even adequate in light of the, rain, the, the, the task at hand. Do they, ex, do they really capture the, the, the circumstances of the nature of the will? Okay. And again, I, I, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail in that, but I'm just expressing, I, I think it's not just a matter of either kind of like a, f- a free-flowing, uh, un, unrestrained libertarian freedom versus a strict determinism. All right. I think there's more, there maybe there's some other categories there. Anyway, my com- conviction is that God acts in such a way as He woos and draws and changes the hearts of those that He desires to rescue and win and make a bride of Christ. So even those on my reformed view, they still are choosing, and it's a meaningful choice. But it's in virtue of having had their heart changed. And then they respond, and they inevitably respond as a result of what God has already done in their lives. And the rest, God just lets go and allows them to follow their own rebellious ways uh, with the consequence of the judgment that that will follow and that they deserve for doing that, okay? Uh, there is another category, by the way. J.P. Moreland would fall in the category of the libertarian free will regarding salvation. That's our choice completely in the same sense, I think, that Bill Craig would say that. However, J.P. thinks once you have made the choice for Christ, there's a miracle of regeneration, which means that can't be reversed. And I agree with that as well. I think that regeneration is not reversible. Genuine regeneration is not reversible, all right? So I'm laying out some theological categories here pertaining to this issue, and some of the players— all right. Now, um, this raises the question of the, in a certain sense, the so-called proof texts, where some seem to say one thing and some seem to say the other. Okay, and it's not possible, I think, to resolve all of the the the, the differences. Keep in mind, by the way, that the so-called proof texts that is, indicate salvation is secured forever, whether you make your individual choice for it, and then you get regenerated, which can't be changed, a la J.P. Moreland, or in the Reformed tradition, it is God's drawing someone into a faith relationship with him, and that those who genuinely have the regeneration end up persevering. That would be the Reformed way of putting it. Um, Either way, you know, nevertheless, you have a security of that. You have this group of people that, once saved, are always saved, to use the um, kind of popular characterization of that. All right? So what about these verses? Um, I think that if we just let it lie and don't try to resolve it, then what what we are faced with is an apparent contradiction. And now what? Okay, so what I try to do with a point of view where they both can't be true is to look at the verses in view and find out which verses seem to be most clear 
regarding one one point of view and those verses that are part of the that are that are pressed into service for the other point of view uh can they be understood legitimately in light of the opposing view so the reason i'm reformed is not because i've answered every single apparent contradiction but rather because i think the verses that speak to sovereign grace seemed univocal it's hard for me to understand those verses in any other way than sovereign grace um the verses that seem to indicate you can lose your salvation a lot of times those are equivocal or the ones that say it's really our choice and not God's choice, those are equivocal. In other words, there's ways of understanding them at face value in a way that fits in with the Reformed view. And so when I do this kind of, you know, scriptural cost-benefit uh, cost kind of analysis, um, that's when I, 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 my conclusion is that the scriptural evidence is far and away on the side of uh, sovereign grace, and this is why I hold that view. But one of those verses in question, though, is the Hebrew 6 passage. And it, um, when, Justin, you cited the passage, um, you, you said, and once you fall away, it's impossible to be renewed. Okay, well, there's actually more that follows. Uh, it doesn't just stop there. And so context in this passage is really important. But let me make a, a broad a procedural observation. This passage, Hebrews 6, is a very difficult passage even to translate. And if you look at different translations, you're going to get little different takes on them, because there's a participial phrase in there that's hard to translate. Um, and so, so I think the general rule is you, you tr- try not to make a strong case for a doctrinal point of view on an ambiguous passage. And so I'm going to explain some of the ambiguity here and why I don't consider this passage to be problematic, even though I may not entirely know how, how to take it, okay? And um, the important thing to keep in mind is the, the context of the Hebrews 6 passage starts in Hebrews 5, verse 11. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that he is he's distraught because these believers, this community, or many of these people, have not um, are 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 not pressing on to maturity. They have need of milk instead of meat, and he's talking about pretty meaty matters before that. And and uh, and then he makes some more statements. So I'm not going to exegete the whole passage, but I just want you to notice this is not a salvation passage principally. It's a passage about moving on to maturity, and that's clear if you read the entire section. And that includes the portion after the warning, and um, in which, uh, let me just find it here. Verse 9, it says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things which accompany salvation. So if you isolate verses 4 through 8, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, etc., and then fall away, it's impossible for them to come back to repentance. Uh, by the way, did, did David fall away radically? Now, I realize David wasn't in a New Testament economy, but David yeah, David fell away pretty radically, okay? 
he was restored. How about this? Did Peter fall away pretty radically? How about publicly denying the Savior with a, a curse and an oath? Yeah, that's pretty bad, right? Was he restored? Sure, he was restored too. So, you know, sometimes when we look at passages and we think, well, maybe it means this, it's fair to ask, what is the, in a sense, if we take this teaching to its logical conclusion, is that consistent with other passages that it, or other circumstances it might apply apply to, where we see a, a different kind of conclusion? In other words, if it if they deny this and it's impossible to renew them to repentance, full stop. And by the way, there is no full stop there. It keeps going, and that's important. But if that's the way it's supposed to read, then what about these cases where we know in the text people have radically fallen away and were restored? And incidentally, I think that not just biblically, but we can think uh, anecdotally, people that we've known that were really strong Christians radically fell away and now seem to be really strong Christians. Is God going to say, no, I said it's impossible. You're not welcome back. The door is locked from the inside. Go away. No, repentance is always—it it just seems, doesn't it? Biblical uh, revelation, biblical theology allows for a restoration and a repentance. Remember when the apostles asked uh, the disciples, rather, Jesus, how, how often should I forgive? Somebody comes back seven times, which sounded pretty generous to them. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. So why would—and I think this is a fair question—why would God put a, a, uh, a heavier demand on human forgiveness than he puts on a divine forgiveness? Now, that question ought to signal the possibility that maybe we're misreading the passage. And I think we are misreading the passage. Okay? And there there are lots of different takes on this passage, but I'll tell you one that's completely consistent with the context of the passage, Hebrews 6, starting in Hebrews 5.11, and the context of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is written to persecuted Christians. These are principally Jews who have adopted the the Christian understanding of how um, God's revelation of the Old Testament works its way out in Jesus, and that's what the writer is informing them about in spades, in detail. And uh, these Christians experience experiencing extreme persecution by Jews. And remember, Initially, it was, according to the historical record that we have, it was Jews persecuting Christians, not Christians persecuting Jews. Later on, Christians persecuted Jews. That was dead wrong, because there's no biblical warrant for that. But nevertheless, this is the way it was happening then. And because of the pressure, you know, it just reminds me, it's very similar to our circumstances now. People who are holding a Christian testimony and feeling pressure from the culture, cancel culture, name-calling, it costs them something, so what do they do? They give in. They give in. And so what was going on here? These, 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 these people that were identified as followers of Christ <clears throat> were kind of going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, all right? That's the context of the book. That's the reason they were being persecuted, and many are given in. That's why you got a lot of warnings. And this is why the writer of Hebrews goes into a lot of detail to say, that old system doesn't work anymore. 
because the final sacrifice has been been given. And, of course, the exclamation point of that teaching comes in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. So it's not even physically possible to do these um, <clears throat> sacrifices anymore. So in the middle of this discourse, as he's moving on and he's talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, the uh, in chapter 5, the, the high priest, the perfect high priest in Christ. Now, this is heavy-duty stuff. And he says, you know, I'd like to tell you about this stuff. This is kind of meaty, but you, you can, you're not ready for meat. You still have need of milk. You, 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 you're babes, and you're babes because of the way you're behaving. You have not learned the stuff that you need to learn to stand firm, and you're faltering. Now, what were they doing? That was an example of their faltering. Well, they were going back to their old ways in the Old Testament sacrificial system, okay? And, and of course, that's it. Jesus has been crucified once for all. There is no other sacrifice that remains. This is what he goes on to explain. So those of you who are participating in that thing are stunting your spiritual growth. <clears throat> and, and, and uh, you know, you need, you need to lay the foundation of, and how does he put it here? Um, you need milk, not solid food. Uh, solid food is for the mature who having because of practice of their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's the end of chapter 5. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. What are the dead works? It's a sacrificial system. That's part of it. And instead, faith towards God. And instruction about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, all of this stuff, all the basics. I don't want to have to go back there. Verse 3, and this will do if God permits, and I think a sense is if it's necessary. But here's the problem. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, sounds pretty strong, like they're believers, some have taken exception with that, but that's my read. I think it's a fair read. Have tasted of the good word, word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Okay, now watch. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, here's the tough phrase in the New American Standard. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to shame. So the impossibility of renewing to repentance, that is, repentance from dead works— verse 1 of chapter 6, um, the impossibility is tied to something else, which is referred to as crucifying again to themselves the Son of God and putting him in open shame. There's something they're doing that is keeping them from repenting. That is characterized in this way. So what are they doing? Well, they are renewing the Old Testament sacrificial system. This system that goes over and over and over and over again. Christ ended that, and now what you're saying is what? You're going back to that? I think in chapter 10 it talks about trampling underfoot the grace of God, right? Uh, how does that put it there in chapter 10? Because I think it's similar. You're replying to the same thing. Another, what some people think is a tough passage. Um, go on sitting willfully after you say the truth. No longer remains a sacrifice and terrifying expression. 
How much severe a punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? This is chapter 10, 29. This is all tied into them going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. No, Jesus isn't good enough. Heck with that. Trample that underfoot. We're going back to blood of bulls and goats. And and what the writer is saying, this is, this is, you're not going anywhere with God if you do that. And it's impossible to renew yourselves to repentance if you keep doing that. You've got to stop doing that and turn and become, pursue Christ. Renew that, okay? So now that makes perfect sense to me. By the way, repentance isn't what saves you. And so some people read it's impossible to renew to repentance. Well, if you can't be, if you don't repent, you don't get saved. Repentance, in that sense, repenting from sins, this is a controversial, but it isn't what saves you. I have not repented. I've been, I just had my 49th anniversary as a Christian. Have I repented of all my sins? Of course not. I'm not bragging of that. I'm not taking grace lightly. But nobody has. My little children, I write these things that you do not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. The antidote is Jesus, not repentance. And if you can't be renewed to repentance, and of course repentance is what gets us saved, then you're not going to get back saved again, is the way the argument goes, but that's not what saves you. This is not what in the context is being discussed, which is why when he's chastising them for this behavior that they're going back into that is stunting their spiritual growth, and they're going back into that behavior because they're being persecuted, it's easier to go back to the old ways in their community. They're really shaming God and, and, and distorting the Spirit of grace, crucifying Jesus again, after a fashion. So, The writer then says, but, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. What, the, what could po- verse 9 possibly mean if he's presuming that the people he is addressing are not saved? He's saying, we expect to see the kinds of fruits that are characteristic of the salvation you have. Now, that, that characterization I offered makes perfect sense, not only of the general context of the book itself, but also the context of the passage itself and everything that follows, which is, the writer's argument for the once-and-for-all sacrifice of Jesus over and against the annual, repeated blood of bulls and goats being sacrificed for sin. This has, in my take, and I think, now I could be wrong on this, because there's ambiguities about this passage, but what I've said makes perfect sense of the larger context, everything flows. And it's not a passage about salvation. It is a warning about not going back. And it is a warning in this case, not of losing your salvation, 
but of being stunted in your growth. And that's the last few verses of chapter 5. Now, if you want to go forward to chapter 10, this is even more clear. And I know that people read that, misread this all the time. It's another favorite one. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, verse 26 and 27 of chapter 10. Now, people read that. See, there you go. You keep sinning willfully. Jesus' sacrifice no longer avails for you. Okay, back to this first point I made. Make application. I always ask people, have you continued to sin willfully after you received the knowledge of the truth? Uh, yeah. Well, you're not saved. That's the conclusion of their interpretation. And this is true of every single person. In other words, nobody's saved if that's the right way to read it. The problem here is people are reading it in isolation. What is the sacrifice that no longer remains? He doesn't say Jesus in verse 26. What, in the context, his argument, what is the sacrifice that no longer remains? It's the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats. What is the willful sinning? It's continuing into this, in the sacrifice that no longer remains. You keep doing that, there's nothing left for you but judgment. And by the way, the verses that come just before it, the 19, since we have confidence. Verse 21, since we have a great high priest. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Okay, for he who promises faithful. And by the way, if you sin, you're going to hell. That makes no sense, right? All I did was kind of read those verses before it and then threw in the interpretation of verse 26 that some people have. No, he's not saying that. He's saying you are secure. That's the whole point of verses 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. So in 26, he's not going to reverse his message. It's the same message. You are safe in Christ if you trust in Christ, and if you trust in the other sacrificial system, you're lost certain terrifying expectation of judgment. So there's no contradiction there either, at least in my view. People have misunderstood it because they've isolated a passage and read meanings into words like sacrifice that wasn't the intent of the author. Okay, now the First Peter passage, and I haven't even looked at that yet, so let me, uh, that would be, I'm making it Second Peter 2.17, uh, springs without water, misdriven by rain, speaking arrogant words, vanity. This passage here is talking about false prophets. That's, this whole book is meant to speak to the problem of false teachers and false prophets. Chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among you, just as there will also be false teachers. And then he describes them as later with springs without water, verse 17, misdriven by the storm, even denying the, the, uh, the master who bought them. I, I take this not as referring to Christians at all, based on the description, but wolves in sheep's clothing that Jesus warned about. And he's got nothing good to say about these people. Peter doesn't. So I, I don't see this as a con- conflict at all. So um, uh, I think there are going to be verses that come up that, hmm, how do you explain this one then? And I might say, I don't know how I explain it, but I got a whole lot of verses to explain on both sides of the issue, not just a single one. And what I want to make sure as I do is I maintain the unity of, of the revelation. 
So I'm trying to find a way of understanding these texts that, um, that, that, that bring the most harmony in Scripture. And just as I've shown here, these are in the two passages from Hebrews and also the one in Second Peter. These are ones that kind of inveigh against my view. But when you look at them closely, chapter 6 doesn't inveigh against my view. Here's a, here's a reading that's perfectly legitimate that does not inveigh against my view. Okay, um, chapter chapter ten makes my point if you read it accurately instead of that one verse what twenty five reading it in isolation. It's a sacrifice of bulls and goats that no longer avails, not the sacrifice of Christ. The Second Peter passage is talking about false prophets who you know weren't. I have no reason to think they were believers to begin with. So these aren't people who lost their salvation. I think the right way ultimately because since. Though these passages, I think, have an answer, is is not by proof texting, is by examining the nature of salvation and the nature of certain words like elect and predestined, okay? Because you can't ignore that what it says in Romans 8 is that we have been predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That doesn't mean the every single action is predestined it means that that jesus that the father has committed himself to secure an end for us that he guarantees that we become like jesus that doesn't leave everything else out the word predestined means determined beforehand determined beforehand that word is in the text and so is election it, it is troublesome for me that a lot of people just they, they uh, just a personal beef. If you're going to adopt a theology, whatever, however you take it, you can't adopt it and then take words that have a plain meaning and mean and 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 um, and and then understand the meaning of those words to be the opposite of what those words naturally mean. No, we're not predestined. Nothing is predetermined beforehand. Well, why is that word in there? Predestination doesn't mean predestined. It means something else that doesn't mean predestined. Really? Oh, an election? Election means I elect myself. When is it the word election ever ever meant that we elect ourselves? Uh, it just blows my mind. Like prescience, right? This is, oh, God knows we're going to choose, so he chooses us because he knows we're going to choose him. That, that doesn't make any sense. We're the active agent in the choice. So I am making a little bit of a case for the sovereign grace, but I but there's a procedural issue here too. Whatever view you adopt, it, I respect you, okay, um, and uh, it's okay. This is an intramural discussion. It, it's it's weighty one. It's an important one. But you know, J.P. Moreland and Bill Craig are my friends. I've known them and worked with them for years and years. Learned from them too. So we disagree on some things. So what? On these things, this is within the pale as far as I'm concerned. Okay, now, but um, I am, I am offering a procedural point. However, you work these things out, you've got to let the words <laughs> mean what the words mean. All right, and uh, uh, and and not try to redefine them. Okay, so enough with Justin's <laughs> point. I'm looking. We got less than ten minutes to go. So let's see. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's have uh, Jason's. Uh, question. In the context of assessing prophetic claims, I've often relied on the test of a prophet from Deuteronomy 18, 
where we read that anyone who claims to speak for God and yet what they say does not come to pass or come true, then that person is not a true prophet and they were to be killed. But many of the actual prophets um, in the Old Testament made prophecies that didn't come to pass for years, decades, and sometimes even centuries. Given this test for a prophet, shouldn't the Israelites have killed prophets like Isaiah? How long of a time frame do we give a supposed prophet to be able to verify whether or not their prophecy is true? And if it could be decades or centuries before it comes to pass, it seems as though there is no true way to verify whether or not somebody is a prophet because they could always claim, well, the prophecy is yet to occur. Okay, great question, Jason, and a nice and brief, a minute and four seconds, I like that. Okay, uh, notice that the test is kind of a, a negative test for a prophet. Um, maybe I'm not using the words correctly here, but it says, if the prophecy does not come to pass, um, then he's spoken presumptuously, and then, uh, of course, they, you know, they sign these prophecies in their blood, this is a bad thing. But if the prophecy pertains to things that are really way out in the future, well, then there's no way to know if it didn't come to pass, so you'd have no grounds to execute them if the time frame hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, of course, there's no positive reason to believe them, but there's just no measurement of those particular prophecies in place. So it does raise a legitimate question, but it isn't a question about capital punishment. Because you can't claim that if I make a prophecy that's supposed to happen, uh, you know, say 30 years from now, and, you know, at 72, I'm not going to live to 102. So it's not going to happen in my lifetime. You know, you won't be able to tell whether I'm speaking truly or falsely until 30 years from now. But then I'll be dead, so you can't kill me for being a false prophet. All right? So in those cases, you're not able to test to see whether that prophecy is going to be fulfilled or not. It's when the prophecies are shorter term and the prophecies are not fulfilled in the short term. It's the opposite. Then you know that the person is a false prophet and take proper uh, action. All right? So during the time of the deportation, there were lots of false prophets that said, you know, oh, don't fight against Babylon. God says that he will deliver you from Babylon. And then God's prophets would say, no, you're going to get taken into captivity. And then they got taken into captivity. Now we know who was the true prophet in that circumstance. Um, but what about—so you wouldn't kill Isaiah because, uh, you know, the virgin didn't give birth yet. Okay? Well, we don't know about that one. But in the case of uh, many of these prophets, there, there are occasions where they gave short-term prophecies. I should say um, prophecies that had a, a, sh that had a, a short-term, like, event horizons, right? They're going to happen pretty soon. And then they did. Now, I, I, Hezekiah, I was just, you know, maybe a month or so ago reading this in Kings. And uh, I think it was Second Kings, and Hezekiah uh, was promised by first the prophet, who was an established prophet of Israel, uh, was it Isaiah? I'm not sure who, Elijah? Elijah. Established prophet anyway by other miracles and stuff that he'd done. Um, he said that, you know, you're sick, you're going to die. And then Hezekiah, as Elijah's leaving, prays a prayer, and then Elijah comes back and says, oh, change my mind, God heard your prayer, you're not going to die. And then, that's a prophecy, right? Okay, but then, it's a little odd to me, but Hezekiah says, how will I know? 
Well, I would think that he would know whether he died or not, <laughs> but maybe he didn't want to wait to see if he was dead to find out that the prophecy wasn't accurate. But he asked this question. He wants a verification. And so he said, okay, I, here's a couple of miraculous signs. And this is when the shadow goes up the stairway. And uh, those of you who read that, you know about that. So what the prophet did is he verified a longer-term, not like hundreds of years prophecy, but uh, certainly sometime in the near future, the truth of a near future prophetic uh, event, that by, by doing something in the moment, verifying it and doing a, a miracle. And so there are times when prophets will do things like that to demonstrate that they are authentic prophets of God. But the biggest verification, and this is also there in the Deuteronomy passage, is not just if the thing doesn't come to pass. That's a way of testing, in a certain sense, negatively. I guess I used the right word. So you know a prophet isn't a true prophet if they prophesy something in the near term that doesn't come to pass. They're out of here. But there was another test, and that was whether they reflected accurately God's purposes and God's revealed um, law, etc., and covenants. And prophets characteristically—how do they put it? They were um, um, covenant—like policemen. Can't think of the right word. The enforcers. They were covenant enforcers. They were constantly calling Israel back— to obedience to the covenants that had already been revealed. Now, if you had a prophet that was doing the opposite, the text in Deuteronomy, I don't have it right in front of me, does say, okay, these guys are bad guys too. If they are teaching you something other than what has already been revealed, don't listen to them. So a verification, even in the short term, of some of these prophets of their prophetic office wasn't that they predicted something in the future, which I think most didn't, the characteristic of the prophetic office was that they were speaking forth the Word of God, and they were covenant enforcers. They were driving people back with this prophetic voice back to the revealed Word of God and said, if you do not obey God, if you disobey God, if you disregard God, if you go the way you're going, big trouble is going to come your way. And by the way, that's also in the text. So you can read in Deuteronomy 28, through 30, the blessings and the cursings. And guess what? Both happened. In fact, Jeremiah refers back to this implicitly. I figured this out once when I was looking at the Jeremiah 29 passage, you know, if my people, blah, blah, blah. And I don't mean to be disrespectful for blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, it's not the if my people. It's um, not if my people call my man. This is where I know the plans that I have for you. That's Jeremiah 29. Right? Is that Jeremiah 29? Yeah, 29 11. I know the plans I have for you. Blah, blah, blah. This blah, blah, blah wasn't for any Christian. This blah, blah, blah was for the Jews. And he wasn't, and because it was in a letter written to the exiles. Right? And uh, Jeremiah, wasn't, um, Jeremiah wasn't making some new thing up. And he says, notice the words, I know the plans that I have, I have for you, uh, giving you a future and a hope. Now, gosh, I'm now I'm, I'm not getting the words quite right, but um, it, he's he, he's Im, Im, implying that there was something else revealed that was important to the fulfillment of these words that he was 
he was he was using. Okay, I'm going to quickly get less than a minute here. Jeremiah 29. And anyway, what I he said, wait, well, he's talking about something that's already been revealed. And I went back to Jeremiah to Deuteronomy 28 through 30, and there was almost the same words that uh, that that we find here. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future hope. Oh no, it's verse 10. I will visit you after 70 years and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans. Fulfill. He's already talked about this, and it's in Deuteronomy 28, 29, somewhere like that. Do I have it in my margin here? Probably, but I don't have enough time to tell you about it. God already said what he was going to do, and now he's just repeating it here. Point being, what is Jeremiah doing? He's talking about something that happened in the future that's consistent with something that God has revealed in the past. And Daniel, in chapter 9, 70 years later, realized now was the time for the fulfillment, fulfillment of that prophecy. Okay, hope that helps, Jason. I a lot jammed into, what, about 10 minutes on that issue. All right, that's it, friends. Thank you for being part of our show. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven. All right, bye-bye now.